Thanks, Billy. Um, and I would highly recommend uh, those retreats, especially if you're new here. It's just such a great way to get to know people. And I know it can be t- intimidating, especially if you're like introverted and like, I don't know, again, a weekend away with a bunch of people I don't know. But I promise you, the way we've seen God work at those retreats over the last few years has been incredible. And um, I'm especially excited about the men's retreat because I'll be at that one. Um, I won't be at the women's retreat just to allay any fears uh, that you had about that. Uh, but my buddy Lance Odegaard's coming to speak. He's uh, one of Billy and I's really close friends, a church planner from Vancouver, BC, and he's a phenomenal man of God, phenomenal speaker. So I'm really excited about that. So, welcome. I'm Jonathan. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to keep running through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, yeah. Let's just dig in. So if you've got your Bible, Matthew 5, verse 38-ish, 39. Um, We're going to talk this morning about revenge, retaliation, vengeance, how we respond uh, to the world, which many times is hostile um, to the things of God. So here's what Jesus says. He's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right, that you, you give as good as you get and you deserve to pay the price in relation to what you've done. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Isn't that crazy? That is one of the least taught biblical commands, I think, amongst churches I've ever seen. Do not resist an evil person. I mean, like literally, if you're... Just in the world, we build our entire lives about how to resist and stay away from evil people, how to keep ourselves safe. And Jesus just says, man, wow. Okay, so anyways, I'm going to get caught up. That's not even part of the sermon. That just struck me. If someone strikes you on the, tre- on the cheek, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic Let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus gives us this vision of life that is so exposed to the world. He's like, I want you actually to lower so many of the protections you've built around yourself so that the world can see how much the Father loves them, right? And this is how Jesus went through the world. And Jesus beautifully demonstrates these practices. These just weren't ideals for him. He actually stands before Pilate or or before the Sanhedrin, right? And the Jewish leaders slap him in the face, right? The soldiers beat him and he doesn't respond with violence. And and in Jewish culture, the strike on the cheek was like one of the most disrespectful things you could do to somebody would, would be to slap them. Um, it's fascinating. I was, uh, my first trip to Israel, I sat next to a guy who is, is part of a ministry called Jews for Jesus. It's uh, Jewish people who have converted to Christianity and they, they work in Israel trying to just reason with people about who Jesus is. And he's like, I've been, you, you'd be shocked how many times I've been slapped on the street as I've tried to share the gospel with somebody to share about Jesus and just somebody would just slap him and walk off. And he's like, so that verse is like real. <laughs> this isn't just a theory. But Jesus, in this, he, he confronts both those boundaries, but also this like human desire that all of us possess, which is part of the curse, um, our desire for revenge, our desire for fairness, our desire for our version of justice, our desire really to be God, right? To know what everyone deserves and to meet it out, <laughs> 
It's like, I know what that situation deserves, and I deserve to be the one, since I'm the one who's wrong, to like divvy out the consequences for people. And in our flesh, right, when we live in our flesh, what we really believe, and this is so crazy because you see it in others, but you never see it in yourself. In your flesh, you think you see all the angles, right? You think you're so self-aware about what's happening and that you alone can see what should happen. And just so many times our vision's compromised by that. The curse built into us this reflex, right? This reflex of revenge, of retaliation, of vengeance, of the desire for justice for ourselves, and that we just leap to it, right? It's like, you know, when you get the, the reflex test, it's like you don't do anything, it's just your leg just, and that's what we have to confront when we come to Jesus and we declare him to be the Lord and Savior of our life, we invite him to take over and to move in and to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. We actually invite him to transform our reflexes. At the deepest parts of our lives, we invite him to begin to confront how we respond instinctively to the world and start to change that through these different practices, right? And before you know it, somebody striking you on the cheek or insulting you, instinctively you'll respond with love and forgiveness and grace, like without even thinking, right? And, and Jesus, it's like he, he knew about muscle memory before this was a thing, Right? So if, if you played sports at a high level, you'll, you'll know most of what you're doing when you're practicing is you're training your body to respond without thinking. So it's crazy how your eyes in real time, and so you'll watch you know, NBA players, and it's amazing how quickly they do things. And you'll see the difference between somebody who's in their rookie season in the NBA and somebody who's eight years in, because the rookie is like a step behind. They're just not used to how the game flows. They're not used to how spread out it is. The rules are a little bit different in the NBA. And next thing you know, they just begin to learn and their body begins to respond before their mind even needs to because they've done that so many times, right? And so what we have to understand is we have a um, spiritual, emotional memory about how we respond reflexively to the world that has been built into us over time. And it's different for all of us. It's fight or flight it's like, what do you do when somebody hurts you, right? You know, do you get mad? Do you get angry? Do you defend yourself? Do you withdraw? Like, what, what's happening? And Jesus is confronting here what he wants to do in our lives. And this happens really early in the Bible, right? Cain feels offended by God's judgment against his offering. And what does he do? He hides in secret and he waits and he murders his brother, he retaliates, not only against God, but against a human being, against Cain, even though, or against Abel, even though Abel had nothing to do with God's judgment on him, and he, he just takes out his vengeance, his retaliation. And Cain bears the mark of God's judgment on that kind of life, on that kind of response. God says, you're gonna be cast out of my presence and you're going to wander the world. You're going to, and, it's, and it's fascinating. He kind of says, because of this relational brokenness, you're going to struggle to have relationships. People are going to be fearful of you. You're going to be fearful of people. And there's this incredible painting um, by a guy named Fernand Carmon, which is, you can see Cain on the far edge there. It's hard to see on this screen. It's a little easier on the TV. So you can see Cain. And it, 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 if you look it up on the internet, it's, it's amazing to see Cain as this withered, kind of grizzled old man leading his little family, bearing the weight 
right, of his sin. And you see that, that Cain's sin didn't involve just him. Like his retaliation, his vengeance, his desire to have that be meted out by him didn't just affect him, it affected his spouse. It affected his children, it affected his extended family. Everyone got swept up. Lamech, right, goes on to mention Cain in Genesis and he says this, he said this to his wives, right, just in case they didn't know. He said, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. He's saying, if you get into something with me, just know, like, I'm willing to press the button. Like, I go nuclear on people. Like, if you hurt me, I kill you, right? And it's like this this massive defensive effort around his life to let everyone know, like, don't mess with me, (laughs) right? And honestly, some of us, we have imbibed this kind of idea, even as Christians. Like, we've been trained to just like, hey, just put out the things to like, hey, don't cross me, don't mess with me. If you do something that hurts me, I'm going to just cut you out of my life. I'm gonna, I mean, it's all these things, and Jesus is coming in here saying, no, 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 not so with you. Not so with Christians. And I, I was reading about, you know, this, these uh, kind of famous stories. One was Les Miserables the story of grace and forgiveness, and the Count of Monte Cristo, which is like the story of like exquisite revenge. And I was thinking, it's like, it's fascinating, like we, we all want Les, Les Mis for us, and we all want Count of Monte Cristo for others, right? And we dream when somebody hurts us, we're like, oh, I know exactly how to get them. Like, you know I mean, it's like he like plots this revenge to take care of his enemies, and, and, and I think it's just, but when we're the thief, Right? When we're the transgressor, we just pray that we meet someone like that priest who steps into the gap with forgiveness and with covering and with grace. Like we're desperate to not be defined by our mistakes, our sin, our shortfallings. Gandhi said this, he said, if everyone followed the eye for an eye principle of justice, eventually the whole world would go blind. And that's kind of what's happened, right? Like, we don't realize how blinded we are to the way of the world because we've just kind of taken it on and we've practiced it and we've justified it. And we've, we've built whole theories around these things to kind of, um, kind of remove ourselves from the command of Jesus to, to, to show why maybe his way isn't very wise and doesn't really work in the real world. And so this morning I want to I talk about, like, what, what would that look like if we actually took it seriously? Um, I read a quote this week that really, really got to me. It says, uh, as long as you're tangled in wrong and injustice, uh, wrong and revenge, blow, revenge, blow and counterblow, aggression and defense, you will be constantly drawn into fresh wrong. Revenge, retaliation is a never-ending cycle. And, and, and those of us who have, we've, we've had conflict and relationships, we've had troubles, we realize that every time we make an action that's not forgiveness or reconciliation, it, it continues, right, this process. Only forgiveness frees us from the injustice of others. Isn't that interesting? Like, forgiveness doesn't just free that person, it actually frees us. The one who turns the cheek is the one who's free. The one who goes the extra mile is actually free because they said, I'm doing this out of my own volition, like my own will. I'm choosing. You made me go one, but I'm going to go three because I want to. (laughs) 
because that's what's inside of me. Another quote I read this week, vengeance is a passion to get even. It's a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave to you. The problem with revenge is it never gets what it wants. I just want you to hear that this morning. Revenge never gets what it wants. The problem with revenge is it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It, listen, this is so powerful. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded and the escalator never stops and it never lets anyone off. This is one of the easiest things to prove because we are just seeing it in real time. If war could bring peace, there would be no more wars. Because <laughs> human beings have been killing each other in war since we have been in existence. And even now, we're watching it play out. And I know there's all sorts of theories and I know there's, there's all sorts of things that are beyond our scope of power about governments and all these things. I don't know, but, but we know this to be true. That war doesn't bring peace. War just brings more violence. War just creates more memories of hurt and pain and more narratives of you versus me that will just get played out in that next generation. And it just happens over and over and over again. The story of Israel is still happening. (laughs) What happened in the Old Testament, this tiny little strip of land that people have been warring over for generation after generation after generation, the escalator never stops. So, so here's what I think this morning. I think Jesus wants to come into your life as you surrender to him, and he wants to transform your reflexes. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's going to be fun or you're going to get lots of like, immediate reward from it. It's not like you're going to like, man, that person slapped me, I turned the other cheek, and now we're best friends. Like, no, they might slap you again, and you might have to turn your cheek again, right? And you might have to just bear that actually for a long time. But Jesus doesn't promise um, just rewards in this life. We, we have to begin to cultivate an eternal imagination. And this is another thing that I, I think our generation needs to return to is this eternal imagination of what the reward is when we meet Jesus someday. If this world is all there is, then nothing that Jesus taught makes any sense. I'll just tell you, if, if heaven doesn't exist, I don't mean heaven bouncing around on clouds, I mean eternal life with God, new heavens and new earth, this embodied existence where you have a new body with him. Like, if that doesn't exist, this is, I mean, Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like, if, if that doesn't exist, this is craziness. Um, but if that does exist, this is the best life you can possibly live. And it works if that exists. (laughs) Now, I think it works in some really clear ways. Even if that didn't exist, I still think it's better to live that way. But I'm just saying, like, the reward, we're so, like, immediate about our rewards. I think we need to expand our timeline of of what we're living for and what we're looking to, what we're hoping in. Um, Andy Crouch wrote a book called uh, Strong and Weak, and he did this great, uh, he's kind of the king of two-by-twos, which is awesome. Um, and he did this two-by-two of, of kind of a authority and vulnerability. And he talks about, you know, if you have low authority and low vulnerability, then, then you're just withdrawing from the world. You're like, I'm going to play low stakes, right, with no risk. And I'm just going to try to 
live my life undercover and never take anything big risks, never do anything really important, but also never have any like real decisions to make. That's withdrawing. If you have high authority and low vulnerability, that, that's what he would call like, uh, I, I, uh, it's like that's what the wealthy try to, try to do. It's where you have maximum agency. You have maximum power with the lowest vulnerability. It's, it's the vision of a gated neighborhood, right? And if you live in a gated neighborhood, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I love you. Jesus loves you. But I'm saying it's like kind of this thing of protection, putting protection around our lives while also still having maximum power. He would say poverty exists in the lower right-hand corner. Those who have low authority but maximum vulnerability, right? They bear all the markers of being, being exposed to the world with no ability to change or, or maybe not no ability, but really low ability to change their situation. And he would say Jesus would live in the top right corner where Jesus had maximum authority and maximum vulnerability. And that's where human beings were meant to live in the world in front of God. We were meant to live in the world exposed to injustice and pain and difficulty and suffering for him. But that, that it was out of an authority that God has given us. We're not doing it because the world's doing that to us. We're actually choosing our way into loving the world. Knowing that loving the world exposes us to all sorts of risks. Right? C.S. Lewis said this. He said, love anything and your heart will get broken. If you love an animal, right? If you love a sport. If you love, love anything and you're just exposing yourself to risk. And so the fascinating thing, though, is what Jesus does is he actually, he actually starts to transform your suffering by inviting you to move your suffering into that top right hand. To say, actually, like, the, like I know I'm receiving suffering, but I'm actually going to deal with it with an authority that comes from Jesus. You struck me, but I'm choosing to turn the other cheek. And when I do that, I actually gain authority and agency. I'm choosing that. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like here in a second. So I, I've been thinking this week, like, what does this... What does this look like, right? How do, we, how do we do this? And I have some practical steps, and I have a, a really practical example that I think is really amazing. Um, but th- the first thing is, is I think many of us have never actually committed to this way of life. I think many of us have gotten saved in church. We walked the aisle. We went to the altar. We invited Jesus into our heart. We got baptized, but we did not read the Sermon on the Mount and commit to that as a lifestyle, to say, I agree that Jesus is master and savior and Lord and I will live by these ways. That nonviolence will be a part of my spiritual, emotional DNA. <laughs> I'm gonna invite him to bond his life to mine and I'm gonna obey in these things. How do I know this? Because some of the angriest, meanest, most vengeful people you ever met are sitting in pews of churches. And some of them are leading churches and they're on boards and they're teaching Sunday schools and they're leading small groups and they have never committed to this way of life. They've never said, Jesus, help me. I am going to do my best. I'm going to live by your spirit and commit to that kind of non-retaliation, non-violent, non-vengeful way of life. I'm going to receive anything that anybody wants to throw on me and I'm going to transform it by not letting it dominate me and actually giving back to that thing or that person love and grace and compassion and mercy. So we actually submit to the way of Jesus by patience, by waiting on God's action, by saying God sees all of these things and God's the judge. 
Like, I don't need vengeance because God says he, he, he has it all. He's holding it all. He sees it all. He's not missing anything. And we do it because Jesus commanded it. Right? So this morning, I, I just think all of us need to kind of do like a little bit of a self-check to say, have I actually committed my life to this? Have I actually seen that this is the way of Jesus and that there is no following Jesus apart from this way of life? This isn't like an optional thing. Jesus was like, hey, take the Sermon on the Mount, take your top five things and go for it. <laughs> the rest of it, toss. You know, if it doesn't work, it's like, no, 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 no. This, this is the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any man comes to me, right? Like, if you come to me, you come through my way. <laughs> you come through my truth. You come through my life to the Father. So I just wonder this morning, have you committed to that way of life. The second thing is I, I think once you commit to that way of life, you have to begin to plan um, how you are going to respond in these specific situations. I love that Jesus gave specific things, right? And Judaism, being slapped was very likely. <laughs> Obviously, or he wouldn't have mentioned it. <laughs> like, people are like, I've never been slapped. I've never seen anybody get slapped. That was a weird example. He's like, no, no, no. Like, you've seen someone get slapped in the face, and you've seen how they respond, and you've seen the vengeance that comes from it. Um, when I was in Israel, uh, my first time, we got to stay in a Bedouin camp, which is like they're uh, nomadic kind of Arab shepherds, and they just, they still like literally wander the deserts with their sheep, and they follow these kind of ancient trails. It's, it's incredible. So we sat down for dinner, and we had to learn how to eat. You had to learn like which hand you had to eat with and all these things. And he started talking about the law of revenge in their tribes. And he said, if you killed my brother, I have to kill your, somebody in your clan. I have to. And he said, it might not be this year or next year. It might be 50 years later that I take my revenge. But it's coming. It will happen. And you know it's coming. And then you know when that happens, now you, <laughs> you have to do something bad. You know, it's like this thing that has just been playing over and over and over again. So Jesus is giving really specific things. He's, he's talking about uh, when somebody like, takes your money, when somebody sues you and they take, uh, they take your cloak, right? So they, usually they take a coat as like a pledge. And there's a command in the Old Testament that if you took somebody's undergarment, right, if you took their, their tunic or the, the inside, that you had to give it back overnight because that's how people kept warm, especially the poor. He said the poor don't have a blanket to keep themselves warm. What they, what they have is that, that thing that gives them the second layer. He said never take that away from someone, right? Always give it back overnight. Even if you're in a business deal, it's like this thing. And Jesus is saying, like, listen, even if they want the outer, give them the under layer as well. I mean, it's this crazy thing. And then he says, if somebody asks you to a mile, so the, the uh, very regular thing is Roman soldiers would grab uh, a Jew and give them all of their armor and force them to carry it for them. So imagine you're living in occupied territory by people that you hate, and you're walking down the road with your family, and a Roman soldier walks up and says, hey, here, carry my stuff. And if you don't, what do you get? You're, he, you're either going to get beaten or you're going to get killed. And Jesus says, listen, that occupying force who you hate, if they ask you to go one mile, you go two. <laughs> if they ask you to two, you go five. I mean, he's like these very specific situations. So I think for us, we have to start to think about our relationships. What happens when we're wronged in really clear ways? What are we going to do? Are we going to respond out of the flesh? Or are we going to respond with the commands of Jesus at work? What are you going to do in your work situation when someone's clearly just treating you poorly? When, you're, when your boss just hates you, right? And is just making your life miserable. When you have an employee who's working for you, who just, you're just like, oh, it'd be so much easier if I just fired them. 
not maybe because they've done anything wrong, but because they annoy me to death. Like, I just, like, you know what I mean? And, and you can. You have the power. But what do you do? Jesus says, no, no, no. Like, life looks different for Christians. Encounters in the world. What do you do when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Right? This is why you don't put church bumper stickers. We don't do bumper stickers because I don't trust how you guys drive. So <laughs> I don't want that to represent our church. Um, and I don't want myself. So... But I have to think about it, right? Like, one of the best things about Oklahoma is it seems like everyone has a gun, which makes you think about, like, how you treat people on the road. So I'm like, that guy probably has a gun. So he cut me off, and I was like, eh, good one. <laughs> I'm just going I'm just, I'm to keep going, right? But, like, think about, like, really specific things. And, and as you fail in these reflexes, you come back and you think about how would Jesus have responded what, what should have been my response? And then you think about it and you say, man, when that happens again, I'm going to completely change how I respond and react to that kind of situation. And, and, and I just want you to know, some of us, like, I am a very, uh, I'm, I, I feel things really deeply. I have, like, like, pretty hot emotions. So I respond pretty aggressively on the outset of situations. So this, is, this stuff's so hard for me because my natural reflexes are to, like, to engage or to say a word that's like, oh, really? You want to do this? Let's go. Like verbal sparring, you know, right? And so like Jesus, he has had to work so much, and I'm not even close to being finished, but I'm getting better at just, just holding my tongue in situations and waiting for the Holy Spirit to say, okay, now speak, right? Speak a kind word. Speak a gentle word. Listen. Like, and so I think this is the thing that Jesus is working on my reflexes, how I respond to people, especially people who I've, it feels like we're like at odds, right? And there's something at stake. And this is where the, the ego is like such an enemy to Christianity. Your ego has to be crucified over and over and over and over again. Because Jesus is, Jesus is the son of God. He came from the throne room here and he walked the earth and let people do things to him that you and I would never allow to happen. And you're going like, if Jesus could do that, if he could take on that stuff, man, I can as well. So, so I, I love uh, this example. You're not going to be able to read it, but this is Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, uh, suggestions for how his followers would respond when they desegregated the buses. Right? So we've won. It's legal for us to sit wherever we want, but we know that's not the end of it. Right? We know we're not just going to sit down on the bus and everything's going to be good. So I love that he took this situation to create a, a very detailed list of ways to respond both generally and specifically. So I'm going to read this out to you because I think this is so beautiful about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what's great about this. This is not just like how to be a disciple of, uh, of MLK. This is this is. Jesus stuff. He says, this is a historic week because segregation on buses has now been declared unconstitutional. Within a few days, the Supreme Court mandate will reach Montgomery, Alabama, and you will be reboarding integrated buses. This places upon all of us a tremendous responsibility of maintaining, in the face of what could be some unpleasantness, understatement, a calm and loving dignity befitting good citizens and members of our race. If there is violence in word or deed, it must not be our people who commit it. You see what he did? He gave them authority and agency. He said, guess what? You have the ability to respond in nonviolence. That's who we are. For your help and convenience, the following suggestions are made. Will you read, study, and memorize? <laughs> I love this. He's like, this isn't a joke. I want you to read it and study it and memorize it. Take it in. 
First, some general suggestions. Not all white people are opposed to integrated buses, except goodwill on the part of many. This is crazy. He's like, take the people who might mistreat you and see them, first of all, with a benefit of the doubt. To say, I'm going to see this person who could be perceived as my enemy, and I'm going to hope that they're actually on my side first and treat them as such until they show otherwise. Isn't that a different stance in the world than believing everyone's against me, how do I defend myself? He says, no, no, not all people are opposed to us. Accept that goodwill. The whole bus is now for the use of all people. Take a vacant seat. Pray for guidance and commit yourself to complete nonviolence and word and action as you enter the bus. He said, you, you will not live the way of Jesus if you're not a person of prayer. Amen. As you get on that bus, you pray to God for power. And guess what? God delights in pouring out his power on people who are desperate for it. Demonstrate the calm dignity of our Montgomery people in your actions. In all things, observe ordinary rules of courtesy and good behavior. He's saying, this is who we are. This is the way we act. Remember that this is not a victory for Negroes alone, but all Montgomery in the South. Do not boast. Do not brag. He said, we won, but don't use it as a chance to boast or brag or put yourself so like, listen, this is a victory for everyone. <laughs> I love to see you. Even white people won in this, victory, in this thing, right? We all won because it's the, it's the right thing for all of us. Be quiet, but friendly. Proud, but not arrogant. Joyous, but not boisterous. Be loving enough to absorb evil and understanding enough to turn an enemy into a friend. Now for some specific suggestions. The bus driver is in charge of the bus and has been instructed to obey the law. Assume that he will cooperate in helping you occupy any vacant seat. Do not deliberately sit by a white person unless there is no other seat. So he's saying, listen, don't, don't court trouble, Right? And I know there, there's part of me that's like, man, if that was me, I would be like, where's the white person? I'm sitting next to you. Like, that, that would be my, like, that's what I would want to do. And he says, in sitting down by a person, white or colored, say, may I or pardon me as you sit. This is common courtesy. If cursed, do not curse back. If pushed, do not push back. If struck, do not strike back, but evidence love and goodwill at all times. In case of an incident, talk as little as possible and always in a quiet tone. Do not get up from your seat so listen, respond this way, but do, do not get up. <laughs> Report all serious incidents to the bus driver. For the first few days, try to get on the bus with a friend in whose nonviolence you have confidence. He says, go together with someone who upholds the same values that you do. You can uphold one another by a glance or by a prayer. If another person is being molested, do not arise to go to his defense, but pray for the oppressor. <laughs> And use moral and spiritual force to carry on the struggle for justice. According to your own ability and personality, do not be afraid to experiment with new and creative techniques for achieving reconciliation and social change. If you feel you cannot take it, walk for another week or two. We have confidence in our people. God bless you all. Isn't it amazing how specific and detailed he, he is leading people into observing and obeying the way of Jesus? That's so challenging because I don't think that most of us have gone into that kind of detail about our life <laughs> and about what to do in certain situations. What do I do in this situation? Oh, I'm going to write out a list of 17 rules and memorize them, right? If I did that for you guys, you'd be like, stop being legalistic and like dramatic. Can we just be Christians and like, you know, hang out, right? Like, and I love that he's just saying like, we should have a clear understanding of what Jesus called us to and a clear plan of how we practice it. Right? So you, if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, should have a clear understanding of what he asks us to do, and you should have a clear plan of how you are going to follow it. And then you go and practice it, <laughs> and go and see what happens. 
I love that he, he realized, MLK Jr., that you can move from the bottom right of the quadrant to the top by practicing the way of Jesus. That, that transforms your suffering and injustices, and it takes agency over your affliction, and it turns it back onto the injurer, right? That now they have to deal with your response and reality that looks nothing like anything they've ever seen before. So when they're ready for you to retaliate and you don't, but you respond in love, it's like... Now, it might not transform it right away. So we can't just say, oh, if I do that, it's just going to change everything. We're going to hug in the moment. No, no, no. It might take years, decades, and it might never happen. But we do it because Jesus asked us to. So, so why, why are Christians no longer known for practicing this? Can I ask you, when was the last time you heard, oh, those Christians, the ones who practice nonviolence? the ones who turn the other cheek, the ones who go the extra mile, the ones who are willing to just receive injustice and like oh, transform it. I don't remember the last time I heard that spoken about Christians as a whole. And again, I just want to go back through. I think, I think we haven't committed to it. I think we haven't thought deeply about it, mostly because a lot of us have, have been able to order our lives to where we don't have that kind of resistance and suffering and affliction thrust on us. Uh, we had a friend, uh, Ben Knuckles, who said one time, if you don't have any pain in your life, you better go and find some. <laughs> I love that statement. Like, go and find some difficulty. Because it's really hard to live like Jesus without it. I mean, almost everything commanded was about how we move into that with love and grace. We haven't practiced. So even when we thought deeply about it, we've struggled to practice it. And I think the last one is, is really important. I, I think we... We've been unwilling to let go of our anger and bitterness that exists deep in us to allow this ethic to transform our hearts. So Martin Luther King Jr., the only way he could write that thing is because he had done the deep work, the deep transformative work of forgiving people who had deeply wronged him and, and let go of the bitterness of his heart and now saw people as objects of love rather than enemies, Right? And so he could list these really practical things because he had done that like inner deep work. Ephesians says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ Jesus has also forgiven you. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, all that stuff, let it be put away. It's not fit for a follower of Jesus. Hebrews says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. You think your bitterness and anger just affects you, but it does not. Wherever anger and bitterness exist, it defiles many. It seeps out, it spreads, it goes over the edges of the cup, and it affects everyone. Martin Luther King Jr. said, forgiveness is not just an occasional act, it's a permanent attitude. <laughs> it's not something you do every once in a while. It is the attitude of the heart of someone who has been transformed by Jesus. So, so what do we want to do this morning? Here's what I want to say. I want to say, like, we want to step off the escalator <laughs> of vengeance and retaliation. We, we want to step off of that and get clear of being the kind of people who always require fairness, always require justice for ourselves, always require somebody to come and do something to someone else to pay the price for what we feel we deserve. 
And, and Paul says it in Romans 12. He says, do not take revenge. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. God sees. If you think you're angry about injustice, you have no idea how angry God is about injustice. And I think if we can be, like, really honest, <laughs> our hands are not clean. Right? We're not the innocent ones begging for God to bring down fire on all the defiled. We, we have been defiled by anger, by injustice, by retaliation, by vengeance. We have not cared always for other people's reputations, right? For their emotional well-being, for their relational well-being, for their physical well-being. All of us at some point have done something to injure someone else. Both like really, um, what would you call it? You know, sins of commission, like actively and both by just allowing things to happen. By not stepping in when we saw someone else be mistreated. We're part of it. Frederick Buechner said this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last, to the last toothsome morsel the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for the king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. So this morning, I, I just was thinking about, Jesus, how do we practice this? How do we become a community that our reflexes get transformed into where we actually transform what people in, in our spheres think about Christians. It's like, oh man, Christians. They're the most forgiving, loving, compassionate. Like, you can't offend them. <laughs> you can't break relationship with them. They never give up. They never go away, no matter what you do to them. They just keep coming. Like, how do we become that? And it felt really clear that he was like, you know, the, the only way you can do this is, is to clear the space in your hearts for this to take root, which is to remove all the places of bitterness and anger and grievance from ourselves. Because until we do that, we will never have the capacity to actually reflect in the moment. <laughs> There'll always be like this hindrance in there because we're angry or we're upset or carrying stuff in us. Um, so I, I want to have a response time. And uh, this might seem really youth groupy, so but I'm a former youth pastor, so this is fun for me every once in a while to go back to my roots. Um, so I'm going to have Annie and Billy and Kelly. Could you guys kind of get set up? I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, so as I was praying about this, like how do we respond? How do we um, how do we clear that space? What does it look like to clear that space? And uh, I was reading about uh, the the Benedictine monks and how they do these services of forgiveness and reconciliation. And what they do is they put bowls of water there and they invite people to carry their grievance and literally like dunk it in the water and pray and ask God to forgive like both them and the person they have the grievance against and they like under the water they let it go. It's like a, it's, it, I love it because it's like a picture of the, the baptism of your hands <laughs> and how you are going to treat the world. How you're going to respond um, And I was just thinking about, Lord, this is so, such a powerful thing. So for so many of us, I think we carry things that we don't even know until we get into those moments. And then we see how bad our reflexes have been shaped. We're like, oh, I didn't want to respond in anger in that moment, but I've got this stuff. 
and I don't know how to release it. And then one of the men who went through one of these services, he said, it was amazing to combine, because he said, many times I say in my heart, I forgive, and yet it doesn't work. He said, there's something about involving my body and aligning my body and spirit, soul, everything in this thing to say, I, I'm going to let this go, right? Um, so I want to invite you to stand to your feet. And I was just, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just take a moment. Invite the Holy Spirit to search us. The psalmist says, search me and know me. If there's anything in me, that's against you, Father, like you would clear it out. But maybe this morning you actually need to come and just dip your hands in the water and release it and really release it, not to pick it up again. To say, I've actually released it directly to God. It's gone into the water. This thing is dead. That grievance. So that you would be free to love the world. To love your spouse. To love your children. To love your friends. To love your neighbor as Jesus loves them. So it said that anything that hasn't been transformed will be transmitted. So I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you, if you feel led, there's actually a a basin in the back too if you can't kind of kneel at the front. So there's one at the back if you'd like to stand and do that. Um, And uh, I got a suggestion from Andy to have hand sanitizer to, (laughs) you know, to sanitize baby before and after.